are we even doing here today? Sorry uh, to bother you, but we have to podcast, <laughs> and we're going to talk about the film. Sorry to bother you. Yes, that is what. Never we're heard doing. of it. Oh well, it's a Boots Riley. Give film. me the tele. Give, give me the teller marketing. Stick to the script. <sighs> Sorry to bother you, but I have to encourage you to watch a film. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> Hello. Is it, are we doing a thing? Uh, yeah, we're live. You're, you're hot. You're All live. Right. You're hot. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Oh, no. We are? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> this has been so... Oh, no. Oh, boy. I thought this was all scratch track. Oh, oh man. Oh, brother. Uh, hello, everybody. Welcome again to the Good Trash Honor Cast. We gather on a table. We discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. Uh, this week's film, as we look at 2018 in review, is Boots Riley's Sorry to bother you. Uh, and so we'll still be talking about that. I am still Dozen. I'm still Arthur. I'm still Dalton. But if for power caller status, you can call me whatever you want. That's true. That's true. You have to redact my name. You can call me Dobotchery. Mr. Beep. Miss Dobotchery. It's such a funny a throwaway Caper, line. Caperland is so... She's got like two <laughs> scenes, but she's so good. Oh, man. Um, in case you're tuning in for the very first time, though, this is an analysis show, not a review show, and that does mean we are going to spoil the movie, which I think might be significant in this case. Uh, and so we're going to avoid that till towards the end of the show. So we'll begin with synopsis, which is, of course, the general thing. It's a movie about a guy at a call center who uh, gets promoted and finds, you know, nefarious things, I'm sure, whatever it says, you know, something along those lines. Just took my job. I didn't take his job. I'm why just, am I even here? I, I, I'm, I'm being, I don't know why he's doing this. I'm being yeah. so generic is what I'm trying to No, yours is going to be so much better. I know it's going to be so much better. Anyway, uh, from that, we move on to thumbs Take my talents elsewhere. <laughs> Thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Uh, we very, very quickly just talk about whether or not the movie hits for us or not. Then we get into gentle spoiler, thematic spoiler territory with a little game we like to call Expand the Syllabus in which we might discuss thematic through lines that might spoil a little bit of what's going on in this film or other films in its orbit. And then we play music. And the music lets you know that we have gotten full down to business. And that's when all spoiler bets are off. Lock the garage door down because, yeah, we're going to do it all at that point. People will be throwing cell phones at us so if you're not comfortable with that you're gonna need to see yourself out yeah we need to talk about that scene uh talk about everything that's what we do here yeah we do that for an hour to an hour and 20 minutes maximum Maximum. we can talk about tessa thompson for one two three four or five hours yeah however long we want yeah we'll start for that we'll start at veronica mars We'll end at Thor. I, don't, uh, I was gonna, <laughs> okay, sure. I was I was gonna say one of the music videos uh, she did with Janelle Ooh, Monet. Yeah, Creed three. Okay, I guess Creed three. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so with that, um, can't wait to spend three weeks talking about Thor's. <laughs> <laughs> Arthur, do you have a synopsis with which to delight us? Cassius Green has a hard day at work after horsing around at a client's big party. <laughs> oh my God. I knew it was going to be better. I've got a real one if you want it. Okay, yeah. let's hear that. Cassius Green is looking to find a place in the world and create a legacy. When an opportunity to make a name for himself at his new job arrives, Cassius has to decide between standing in unity with his co-workers or advancing his career. Yeah, see, yeah, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. You did a great job. Okay. I'm so proud of you. Thanks. You're just you're just you're just a joy to be we're around. We're just horsing around, boys. We're just we're just we're just boys, you know. He's just digging himself out of this hole. That's what he's <laughs> trying to do. I'm just <laughs> like, oh, I'm sorry, I stole your job. Oh, oh, on the weekend the the strike ended. I stealed your job. I'm so sorry. Appropriate. Uh, it is. It's really yeah, no. It's so appropriate. We're talking about uh, the cross the the big labor movie of the last couple of years, right? As the the SAG after strike yeah. ends this this weekend, so that's kind of fun. Yeah. Um. So with that, let's go ahead and we've all seen the movie before. I assume let's yeah. just move our way around the table. Then I go to you first, Arthur. Do you like? Sorry to bother you or not. Tell me why. Uh, the pilot for BoJack Horseman is incredible, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> um, uh, it's yeah, it's good. It's real good. Um. I think that, uh, I mean, it's incredibly well made, um, and it it just works so well to establish this somewhat alternate reality mm-hmm. where things are very similar, but just slightly off, and then inject that with this hyper absurd, on the nose sort of satire of big corporations and capitalism. Like, it's it's not really like hiding that under any sort of, you know, artifice or anything. It's pretty on the nose in that sort of structuring and an element of it. Uh, but that combination, I think makes it just really work in earnest, uh, without ever coming off as, you know, I think preachy or, I, I don't know. I think it has enough goodwill so that the message comes through in a good way. 
um, and what Boots Riley is wanting to say comes across well. Uh, of course, StatCast, uh, I mean, we've already mentioned uh, Tessa Thompson, but Lakeith Stanfield's great, and Danny Glover's getting the show up here, and kind of everyone that fills out this movie, um, they all get a little bit to do, a little bit to shine, um, and it never feels like anybody's losing focus or losing a place in this movie. And so I think that is, I mean, I think it's a, is this, I mean, it's this feature debut, right? I mean, it's yeah, his only yeah. movie, right? Yeah. He's, I mean, he's he's, got, sorry, I'm a Virgo or, or whatever. <laughs> I'm a Virgo. I, lo- I, well, I, I do love the idea they all start with sorry, though. That's fair. <laughs> uh, I think you should apologize if yeah. you're a Virgo, though. I think it's just inherently built in. Wow. Arthur's coming out swinging against the Virgo As community. a cancer, I have a staunch. <laughs> I'm married to a Virgo. <laughs> hey, I didn't make that decision. <laughs> Not all my Virgo <laughs> friends are mad that I'm not more fervently defending them, I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah but I'm going to do a new age two. country western thing. So, like, all my Virgo friends. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's okay, like a country sure, jam. Sure. Um, all my Virgos are in retrograde. <laughs> yeah, this, this, oh, my. <laughs> this is the feature debut. And, uh, yeah, to date, the only feature film from Boots Riley. And it just comes out swinging. Yeah. I mean, just. Totally. It feels like it's made by someone who's been doing this for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of it works very well. And he's able to balance the tone of what this movie is and what it becomes so smoothly. And it's hard to really kind of talk about it, I think, in full without talking about that third act. But that that thing that happens there fits into the rest of this movie. We haven't seen anything like it up to that point in the film. But because of the very nature of the absurdity of the satire of... Um, the different corporations, I can't even think of what they're worry free. Yeah. Worry free. The telemarketing company. I can't think of what's uh, Regal, Regal view. view. Regal view. Right. The absurdity of these places and the sort of, uh, you got the crap kicked out of your TV show. That's on mm-hmm. like all of this builds a verisimilitude within the narrative that allows for that third act drop to fit in totally well without like being a reach at all. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so well done and well established uh, because in a, on paper, I don't think it works. Uh, I, I just don't know how you can make it work, and he does. Uh, and it's funny, and it works. I really want to be in that pitch room when Boots Brown was like, I got this idea, guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, here's how we're going to get here. Um, but it, he pulls it off like a magic trick, and, and so well. And it's not a movie I'm like, I, I, it's hilarious, but it's not a movie I'm just like, ha, 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 ha. It, it, everything about it, the absurdity, the way it presents itself is just so funny to me. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a different sort of humor to me, uh, but I think it works. Um, there are a couple moments where I did laugh out loud. Uh, but, I mean, everybody's so good. Such good chemistry between everyone. And I like how it all resolves. Um, yeah, I mean, it's good. It's, it's good. It's weird and it's good and it just gets weirder. Yes. And I like that about it. Very- it, it gets weird with it and it keeps getting weirder. Yeah. And I appreciate that. So, yeah, man, I'm a, I'm a fan of Sorry to Bother You. Very good, very good. Well, what do you say, Dalton? Do you like Sorry to Bother You? Well, those in the know will remember I had this up in the 30s on my top 100 when we did that. Um, and, you know, I, I will pretty much echo everything Arthur said. That That, that is, I couldn't agree more with, with it, everything. Um, I do have to say I've, I've dropped it a little bit lower, uh, put it back down around the 80s, but it is still in the top 100 for me after this rewatch. And I think... You know, as Arthur said, it it commits to its bit and then like elevates constantly. And I think that's a really big strength. And it, it is such a shock that, you know, it's it's not a shock because, you know, the coup's been making music for, you know, a long time. Uh, but prior to this movie coming out, even like there had been a band for like 20 years. So it's it's not surprising that Boots Riley as an artist was able to come up with a, a to write and direct and release a film that was this fully formed on, on a first swing at bat when he's, you know, obviously been thinking about the the story for a long time. You know, they've got a, a 2012 concept album called Sorry to Bother You that is kind of loosely uh, telling a, a story reminiscent of this one. Um, and then there, there's the uh, uh, publication of McSweeney's in 2014. Um, they, they just published Sorry to Bother You uh, in full. Uh, and I don't know how different the McSweeney's version of the movie is from the final film. I, have, I haven't ever really, really looked into that. Mm. Uh, but I just bring up that background to say that it, it does make sense when you, you know that this was gestating for a really long time. Um, but outside of, you know, the things thematically that work about it, uh, humorously that work about, you know, it's, it's, it's extremely funny and it's, it's jokes are 
woven throughout in like really small ways. One of my favorite recurring gags is the photo of Cassius's father. That's like the the Greek chorus of the movie, letting mm-hmm. you letting uh, Cassius letting you know how Cassius feels about what he's doing by virtue of how what he's projecting onto this idea of his father. And it's just like little stuff like that. Uh, the design of this version of Oakland is is kind of eclectic and weird. Uh, upscale elegance. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah the funny. VIP lounge, just everything is just so designed so cleverly. And even the shots, like, again, for a first-time filmmaker, you, you really are struck with, like, the... There's shots inside of that Regal View call center room that make that small room look feel like it goes on forever. Mm-hmm. And that's not that big of a room. Um, it's just, like, really, really good shot design uh, throughout, I feel like. Uh, I'm struck on this watch by the performances again, you know, uh, and it, it just kind of all sides together so well, because obviously Arthur's mentioned this great cast and, uh, in terms of, you know, uh, Tessa Thompson and Lakeith, uh, and then, you know, the supporting actors, Stephen Yin, uh, Jermaine Fowler, um, all really great, but, uh, the voice cast is also really good. David Cross, uh, Lily James and Pat Oswalt are kind of the main three. Um, and really it's mostly Oswalt and David Cross doing most of the voiceover work. Uh, but the, the way Omari, um, Hardwick mashes his performance up with Oswald's narration and same with Lakeith and Dave Cross. Like the way those two performances are put together into one performance, like that conceit just works really well. Mm. Um, and it kind of is for the first half of the yep. movie, what you really need to work well, cause it's kind of holding down the movie for mm-hmm. a long stretch. Um, yeah. And, and if that doesn't work, the movie doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that whole, and, and the way, that the film deals with code switching and kind of like, you know, the way it's introduced is when Danny Glover's talking to Lakeith Stanfield's character, you know, this Langston's explaining to Cash is what he means by the white voice. He's like, no, not nasally. And then he kind of like explains the construction of whiteness Uh and like the idea of presenting yourself like you feel like you're supposed to be presented and just kind of like, puts a name on like the central cognitive dissonance that is like white presentation within our current economic model. And it's just like a throwaway line. It's kind of like, a, it's funny, mm-hmm. but it it's, it says so much about the film and about what boots is doing within the film. Uh, it's, it's to me like one of the thesis statement moments of the movie where it's just kind of like lays it all out. Uh, obviously there's other like very clear moments where the movie's like, uh, well, my online, my broken online brain, of course, thinks of the Garth Marenghi's Dark Place gif, and it's the Garth Marenghi character saying, uh, I know writers who use subtlety, and they're all cowards, and this movie is very much one of those, like, it's not didactic, and you, mm-hmm. you would expect a movie that's, like, this in your face about its themes to come across a little bit more, like a Spike Lee movie, preachy, yeah. and it doesn't. It's not mm-hmm. that kind of movie. It's it's mm-hmm. Surrealism is such that it, it wouldn't make sense for it to go that didactic, so it stays kind of within its world. Uh, but again, its world is just like a, a funhouse mirror version of our own. So nothing feels like that crazy. Um, and again, it, while not being subtle and saying everything that it means, it manages to do it without like ever feeling like it's preaching at you, which I think is even, and I'm a Virgo kind of is more didactic directly. Cause there's a character's like a storyteller. It was really interesting. I wrapped up. I'm a Virgo like the last two episodes since we last met. Cause I wanted to like get that show in the bag before we recorded this, just cause I'm such a big fan of this film. Um, and it's, it's interesting to see him with a little bit bigger canvas paint a similarly, you know, a, a world that we recognize, but uh, with superheroes and, mm-hmm. and people with superpowers and, and yet like it feels very much rooted in, in our, our own understanding of, of how the systems operate. Uh, so check out on my Virgo too. If you, if you like this movie, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, but the, the two go together kind of neatly and it's interesting to see him go a little bit more didactic and I'm a Virgo, but still use, use real storytelling and real like visual storytelling to, to paint a picture without, you know, fully going into just mo- having a character monologue. Uh, and again, this film never does that. And I, I think I'm a Virgo while being more didactic doesn't really do that either. And that's that's the strength of his writing and strength of what he brings as a storyteller, I think, is 
uh, a directness without ever, you know, preventing the thing from standing on its own legs and being fun and entertaining. And um, one thing can be all those things, it turns mm-hmm. out. What about you, Dustin? You'd seen this before, right? Did you the, catch it in theaters? I did catch it in theaters. I'm glad you asked. Yeah, because we, I think I, we all did, didn't we? I saw it in a theater where it was just me and the guy that I went with. That's right. It was just you and Jamal, right? Me and Jamal. Yeah, okay. And we had a good time. Yeah, I'm uh, sure. We, we laughed really, really, really hard at this movie. And it, it remains really, really funny. Um, as Arthur was saying, I think, earlier, it's sort of management of tone is uh, really part of what's really impressive with how the film does what it does. I did think the second time watch, it's a little soggy in that in between second and third act there's i I feel like things kind of came together a little quicker that's kind of why i dropped it down yeah i know exactly what you mean no no again i I think i think it's really really good and i think it's a different kind of movie and that's part of why my expectation wasn't quite met but it doesn't serve any thematic purpose other Mm -hmm. than the material itself is thematic but there's not a, a reason to have that sort of i don't know pause other than to put forward this sort of other idea of I have a truth teller now who's not being listened to or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it, it doesn't, it doesn't quite, you know, again, a little tighter screenwriting might've helped it a little bit there, but I'm not really meaning that as a critique other than just saying, you know, I'm not suggesting it's perfect, even though I love it is uh, the thing I am thinking about it as I say what I say. Um, I also really, really enjoy just man production design. I mm-hmm. love Tessa Thompson's earrings. I love yeah. the uh, art gallery itself. I love the design of the, the Regal view room, the Regal view upper room, mm-hmm. the party room, the VIP room. I love the design of uh, what's his bucket's house cash's his car cash's car yeah. yeah yeah like all of that stuff is just really really right on and uh, so I, I i really really enjoy that about it i also enjoy special effects makeup that is used in this film in terms of production design mm-hmm. and i'll say no more at this point but i do think it's very very good uh doing a very very specific kind of look and uh yeah like that very much um michelle dongry <laughs> <It's> really good <laughs> bit just very the claymation funny. there's a lot of cool mixed media stuff in this mm-hmm. movie yeah, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I think it's a great little passion project from Boots Riley. Um, I've been listening to The Coup forever, too. And so, yeah, this is very, very fun and uh, really, really dig it. And uh, glad it's such a success and very excited to keep talking about it with you guys. So with that, we're going to move on to the next part of our show, which is called Expanding the Syllabus. And at this time, Dalton's going to tell you what Expanding the Syllabus is all about. That's right, Dustin. I am going to do just that. So Expanding the Syllabus is a thought experiment where the three of us sit down with the week's assigned viewing. Uh, sometimes the week's assigned viewing is more likely than other weeks to be discussed in a film studies course. I think you could find this film in one pretty easily. Um, so, you know, we, we break our own rules as often as not. Uh, but the, the point is we're developing either a module within a class or a class, uh, that's kind of based on the week's assigned viewing. Uh, and we're going to bring in other texts to try and uh, deepen the conversation. Yep, yep, yep. That's exactly what we're going to do. And Dalton, do you come prepared with the syllabus? More or less. So I've got two films. We'll be the judge of that. Yeah, I think you will be. <laughs> uh, th- maybe this is just like a seminar. Maybe this is just, uh, you know, a, a weekend long film festival. Uh, but I think this film sits in conversation with two films I haven't actually seen. Uh, but have been wanting to catch up with for a while. Uh, and that's uh, Spike Lee's Bamboozled mm. and Robert Downey Sr.'s Putney Swope. Uh, Putney Swope is probably the last known of these two movies. I've seen that one, but I've not seen Bamboozled. Uh, Bamboozled has the distinction that of... completely tracks for yeah, Dustin. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Uh, Bamboozled has the distinction of being one of the last uh, DVDs I got from Netflix. Uh, and it was part of the reason I stopped getting DVDs from Netflix, because I just, like, it sat next to my DVD player for eight months and I just never got around to watching it. And I was like, Oh, I'm, and, and by that time, like the digital component of Netflix, had, the streaming component had started to come into its own. And I was like, well, I'm not really using the DVDs anymore. So I'll send it back. So sadly I've still yet to catch up with this. I've been told the criterion release of this film's really good. Uh, but bamboozled is about a black TV executive who hates his job and takes the most racist thing he can think of to his executives. And it's basically SNL is a minstrel show mm. uh, and they love it and they put it on the air and it's a huge hit. Right. And what, go- what happens from there? But Swope is uh, about a black ad executive who is overdubbed by Robert Downey senior. I think so. Yes. Doing a voice, let's say. Yes. Um, but it, it is about kind of a similar, this guy comes in with 
very in your face material and uh, it's it's a runaway success mm-hmm. and he ends up like by, by accident becoming the head of this this ad firm uh, and nobody stops it from happening and he basically takes over and makes them more successful than they've ever been um so all three of these films kind of fit together into you know uh, a, a central f- couple of themes of like race class presentation capitalism commerce like how do all these things fit together how does commodification of blackness how does presentation of quote-unquote whiteness uh or you know acceptability to white society like how do all these things how does pitching to a white audience impact things um so again i i think all of these films kind of fit together interestingly and again watching this the the whole time i was like god i gotta get to these other two movies uh because especially Putney Swope was one that I feel like really got a renewed conversation around it because of this movie. It's very much of a similar cloth. Yeah. Yeah. This film. Yeah. So I think they all kind of fit together into an interesting trifecta. I think the upcoming American fiction is also going to slot in there as well. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're aware of American fiction. Yeah. With Jeremy Wright. I forget who else is in it. Jeffrey Wright. Thank you. Um, who else is in it? Issa Rae, Tracy Ellis Ross, Sterling Brown. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I remembered the cast was pretty stacked. Um, I, I've only heard a little bit about it, but I'm definitely interested in it. I know it won uh, uh, audience choice at TIFF, yeah. uh, which is often mm. a, a good predictor for uh, awards. Um, so I, I know people are excited about this one. But yeah, that I know it's kind of about novels and, and sort of writing about the black experience yeah. and, and so what sells and what yeah, doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Double voicedness. And yeah. yeah. So that good, thanks for bringing that up because I forgot that's coming out this year. Um, yeah, that, that's what I think the class would look like or the module or whatever it ends up being. Very cool. Very cool. Thank you for that, Mr. Dalton. Sir. Mr. Arthur Gordon, do you come with a syllabus as well? Uh, yeah, I, I think I'm going to talk about I feel like we've done a similar one of us has done a similar. So maybe you, Dalton mm-hmm. uh, or me. I don't remember. Uh, but kind of the what we kind of alluded to is the gear shift or the 90 degree turn uh, where we're in movie A. <laughs> and then we suddenly get suddenly movie become, B, uh, yeah. which is a completely different movie uh, in many ways. Uh, and so that's what we take a look at. And then I think the ways kind of looking at this and it could be screenwriting, uh, maybe a good place to do it. But um, thinking about that idea of tonally being able to manage this gigantic shift uh, in the material that you're presenting and asking the audience to be able to buy into that in a successful way, uh, which I think Riley does uh, here with Sorry to Bother You. Uh, and we would start with Psycho, which is kind of the the one I think we go back to and look at uh, there, where at that one hour mark, we uh, get a much different movie at that mm-hmm. point. Um, uh, last year's Barbarian, or two years ago, Barbarian? Time is I think just last, last year's. Year. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, Barbarian does this to great effect as Hell well, yeah. uh, and just a great performance from Justin Long really helps sell it uh, to make that work. Uh, one that hit me when I was thinking about this list, uh, and that's Gone Girl, uh, thinking about Fincher. Uh, but I remember the first time watching this, just how kind of rattled I was when we get that moment. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. Hadn't read the novel, so mm-hmm. that that theater uh, viewing, it was like, oh wow, what? yeah, what? But that was a good time. What movie am I in? Yeah, yeah it's what a moment. So good. Um, from there, we take a look at a couple of international films. We take a look at uh, Japan's One Cut of the Dead, mm-hmm. uh, which is a zombie movie, uh, maybe, um, which is a good time and is played to great effect and great humor there. Uh, we got to take a look at Bong Joon-ho's Parasite as well, which masters this uh, sort of comedy of errors and class and then turns it into something much more sinister uh, by the halfway point. Uh, and then to end it all up, um, one that I think uh, would be a good place to end is uh, From Dust Till Dawn. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's a it's a heist movie. Yeah. And, and then, then it's, it's not. not. <laughs> so <laughs> I, not. I think this is a perfect example of it. Yeah. 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 And so that I think would just be a good time uh, to end us on. It yeah. uh, seems to be a good thing for the horror thriller mm-hmm. genre. Uh, and I think Riley's able to use it uh, to good effect here in a comedy setting yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Even though it is a kind of more dark comedy, serious comedy kind of thing. But mm-hmm. yeah. That's what we would do. I do like that two movies stitched together kind of thing in experience. I just those are just a good time. So I like that a lot. Uh, for mine, I think I'm gonna talk about well, art and revolution because I think that's one of the sort of major themes here mm. in uh, this film is the idea of any sort of 
uh, class or social change uh, and the use useful or uselessness of art regarding that. And there's uh, quite a bit of conversation about that in the film. Uh, the textbook I would use in this, I think, is be a module of sort of a film art kind of course. Uh, maybe Boardwell's big book would be the sort of the major book for the whole thing. But um, what I would then do is uh, take Ben Davis's book, Nine Point Five Theses on Art and Class, uh, which is a uh, golly, I think it's a, I think it's a verso book, but I can't remember off the top of my head, which is a, sort of a revolutionary press. And uh, but Davis sort of just puts together this idea of you know the whole debate does art change the world or not or does it simply reflect and represent the world and is there a way in which the needle moves forward and we've mentioned this sort of debate uh, in various places there and that's one of the sort of great books to sort of uh, dip your toe into that conversation uh, with films I think what we would do is just working backward in time from this I'd go back to the 90s now and I'd look at Haroon Faroqi's Videograms of a Revolution which is uh, a documentary film made with uh, found footage for the most part, TV broadcasts and personal VCR recordings of the fall of Ceausescu uh, in um, Romania uh, during that particular uh, part of the uh, Eastern Bloc spring um, that's going on there. And so, which includes also his execution. So it's a tough watch. So warning, 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 warning. Um, then going backward uh, to the sort of godfather of them all when it comes to art, particularly film art and revolution, uh, Sergei Eisenstein, and talking a lot about Soviet montage. Obviously, the major text for that is usually um, Battleship Potemkin, where you've got a lot of the sort of iconic imagery, and it is sort of the big major work from Eisenstein that everybody knows. But I think I'd also look at October, his uh, uh, sort of biopic, uh, historical picture about the 1917 revolution figured, as well. Yeah, so yeah. You said it was called October, I think. Yeah. And so I think I would probably uh, use both of those movies and think about this particular style of filmmaking and uh, the hope and dream and maybe unrealized expectation of this sort of one and one makes three uh, theory behind montage theory, how that could be a thing that would dialectically sort of free the mind to you change really the world. You need to watch I'm a Virgo. And I do. Get back to me. Okay. Yeah, everybody who's seen I'm a Virgo is hooting and hollering and shouting at their pod player right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because there's the season dramatically concludes with a character whose superpower is arguing and it's like uh, it, every time they end up in a, a debate with somebody, they're able to like storytell and like envelop them in a world of montage and uh, hmm. and storytelling uh, to to make their so associations. And huh? so they uh, explain to the hero played by Walton Goggins, who is sort of a comic book artist slash billionaire slash vigilante. Um, of course, why he he's is. part of the why he's part of the problem, and why hmm. he, why he uh, perpetuates crime, and why why the whole system's uh, a thing. Batman, the Batman. He's 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 the Batman. He's the Iron Man. You know, he's he's all of them. Hmm. Um, so you know, again, much more um, didactic than sorry to bother you, but definitely like concerned with similar things, and like trying to tell a revolutionary story. Uh, and, and again, using sort of these plays within the the larger uh, TV episode, mm. it does a really good job of like structuring it as far as like being structured as a TV show. It's it's pretty good at like doing the modern streaming TV show thing of giving you cliffhangers, but also like lets each episode feel like it was about one thing. One thing. Mm. Um, but anyway, yeah. If if you have the time, I'd be curious to know what you think about uh, sort of the way of. The, the idea of storytelling as revolutionary act in that in that show. I'll move it ahead on my list. Yeah. I'll do that. So there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just gotten much, much longer, I believe, though now it is time we got down to business. It's business. It's business time. I don't know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Ooh. It's business. to number 149 on his list. That's all I can ask for, you know. What? What? You said you were moving forward on your list, so you just moved it up that one was spot. Well, yeah. one spot, yeah, yeah. That's all I'm, you know, I'm just chipping away, just trying to move the needle. My mind immediately went to um, Dalton moving in in his top 100, and I'd moved, um, sorry to bother you, and I was like, I don't even know where I'd be on my Sorry list. to Virgo you. Sorry to Virgo you. 
Man, that's I'm a, a bother. I'm, I'm a, <laughs> you're a cancer. Uh, Truth. <laughs> in every sense. Move. <laughs> what analytical threads have we got? Well, they're all biggies on the eye chart. There's no small E's. <laughs> no, there's not. Yeah, uh, if you've not seen this film, uh, the the big turn Arthur's referring to is it turns out there's horsemen. Yes, and I don't mean sabians. and not Ric Flair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was telling Arthur I really, really want the Ninja Turtles sequel to this mm-hmm. with the Equisapiens living in the sewers and they like. This what, is why you have to watch I'm a Virgo. I, I oh, I'm a Virgo. It's, is this? It's there's like a a, a I, f- I forget exactly how they get introduced, but there's like a bunch of small people who like live in a smaller Oakland and like, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's like it's boots. Riley's the X-Men in a lot of ways. Uh, There's a character who's like a, uh, kind of articulating like neurodivergency, whether that's, you know, being on the spectrum or, you know, ADHD, whatever sort of, but it's generally a neuro atypical mind and like re represents that as a superpower. And Mm. like, uh, as like sort of a speedster character, like a your right. Flash, the Quicksilvers, those types, and and then obviously the the Virgo of the title is is Cootie, and he's a big dude. He's just you know he's like fourteen feet tall. That's his deal. But anyway, um, handy. The, yeah, the the Equisapiens show up, and it turns into uh, a weirder movie than you thought. Oh, really? No, not sorry. Not, not, sorry to bother I you. am sorry to bother you. No, it's not uh, literally. Uh, oh, it's I, not I, a, I thought you were telling me it's not a Boots Riley cinematic universe. No, no, I, was just, I, I want that. I was just steering us, steering uh, us back. For. Fair enough. Steering us back into the turn. I, I guess we can begin with the most obvious thematic and uh, sort of uh, critical thread in the film that everyone knows about, because if they've seen it in the trailer, they know that David Cross is the white voice from mm-hmm. the Keith Stanfield. Mm-hmm. And uh, Pat Oswald is... Yeah, Mr. X's. Mr. X's. Yeah. What's, what's Danny Glover's white voice? Uh, he's uncredited. Yeah. Um, he's like a character actor that okay. doesn't have like... A, he doesn't have a, a an IMDb It's Ryan Corsi. Oh, the Ryan Corsi? Maybe. From Schenectady? Sure. I'm making this up. Yeah. I've never heard of him. And then Lily James is Detroit's white right. voice. Yeah. Right. Uh, so just beginning with this idea of code switching mm-hmm. and uh, this idea, I, I think of double voicedness. I was reading a little bit about this uh, not very long ago in my critical theory course, and we were talking a little bit about Franz Fanon's book, uh, Black Skin, White Masks, and this idea of the ways in which we we present ourselves in society and the ways in which uh, people of color have to, uh, again, negotiate society with what what W.E.B. Du Bois calls this double consciousness, this aware of who I am, but also the aware of how I'm perceived. And uh, then there's an articulation in the sort of swirling of several collective writings from various different authors that um, there's not only a, a double consciousness, but there's also this doubled voicedness in a properly African-American art that it would speak in the registers. I mean, this is I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing this, but it would mm-hmm. speak in the registers of white linguistic uh, or artistic culture, but also speak in the valences of its own African-American thing. And so this movie does that. It, it, it really is very much, you know, what you might think of as, uh, again, uh, sort of uh, niche cinema. This, well, we talked about Afro surrealism like a yeah. year ago now or so, and like we kind of started de- dealing with this. So like, what is it when you kind of like start thinking about it as like art from a black perspective is like mm-hmm. always doing multiple things just because of the nature of the black experience. It's like, what isn't Afro surrealism? Yeah. It's sort like of a, what we started to talk about, but obviously there is actually a rubric and I wish I could remember what episode that was so I could tell, refer people to it. Yeah. But I couldn't tell you. For maybe, sure I'll, maybe I'll get there if I look through my notes here. But it's, it's idea. Uh, again, this is an older sort of formalist term, but it's a heteroglossia and this sort of multiple voices that are hearing, listening, speaking and articulating a given text. And, uh, there is this sort of fun riot of various sort of voices at work here. It was Candyman, by the way. Which oh, it checks sense. out. I was wondering. So, yeah, there's definitely these multiple voices that are at work in these texts and uh, that th- that the African-American experience. And I think this is what the Afro surrealist thing that we were talking about way back on Candyman suggests to us is that there are multiple points of necessary articulation that you have mm. to sort of necessarily um, voice one's blackness in a specific kind of way to sort of prove one's blackness. I think about this conversation about how you go about making your spaghetti and you have to, mm. you know, you have to make it black enough uh, mm. the way uh, between Salvador and cash the cheese and mm. where, yeah. where the cheese goes on. And, and, and then there are other times when you have to articulate your blackness, you know, in a way that is 
cool or, or, or hip or whatever or safe. We talked about this on our Keanu episode with our friend Cameron Brewer. Yeah. Keanu uh, people are real good about highlighting that element, I think. Yeah. That's a, such a big feature of, of their work together is sort of exploring that. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, that's, that's sort of the big obvious thing that's going on there. So read Franz Fanon, read W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, that would be a good place to start. And uh, you'll find some good stuff. Also, just, I don't know, read Langston Hughes and see how he does white poetry, but he, he, he jazzes it up. And uh, that's kind of an, a beginning sort of level of work towards the same kind of thing that we're seeing here for Boots uh, Riley. Check out I'm a Virgo, which is mm. using like superhero conventions and, and is still very much a Boots Riley story. Yeah. This episode brought to you by Amazon Prime. Well, and that's the next thing I want to talk about. I watched, sorry to bother you on Amazon, this film has this whole uh, worry-free thing that like feels very reminiscent of, of, you know, the original screenplay comes from 2014. Amazon was already... You know, becoming a huge employer, and they're they've only grown since then. Yeah, and I I, I think the Amazon uh, corollaries are there. I really thought Walmart quite a bit more yeah. than anything when I was watching. Well, it. and Arthur and our chat uh, so wisely pointed out the color design being very Minions esque, which I yeah, the blue and yellow, yeah, spot on. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah. Well, if, and just like the cut of the clothes, yeah, is like very like you know, overalls with the exactly yellow, yellow arms. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I wonder if the minions design is also inspired by Walmart, and they both picked up the same time. I want chicken and egg kind of conversations about. Yeah, I, don't know. I mean, Walmart really moved came. away from that blue. Yeah, that's true. Kind of the last decade or so. I mean, mm-hmm. they still use it for their branding, but I mean, employee wise, mm-hmm. it's not as big. I just, uh, but yeah, I, to your question. Uh, I guess. And you, what was the book you mentioned about whether or not art can ever be, you, you mentioned 9.5 theses on art and class. Gotcha. Ben okay. Davis. All right. Thank you for bringing that to us this week, because I think this is a great episode to talk about that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we're watching this movie on a streaming service that is, you know, a arm of one of the largest companies in the history of the uh, humanity. As of far as, yeah, yeah. As far as we know, the world. We don't, you know, we don't know what was going on in Mesoamerica in the 1400s. Yeah. The antediluvians might have had some sort of internet we don't know about. Yeah, yeah exactly. But uh, as far as we know, they're cooking with gas over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, sure, this was financed by Annapurna, uh, which is sort of kind of floundering these days. I don't yeah. know what's going on with them. We haven't um, seen much out of them lately. But well, they not- made a lot of bad bad place mm-hmm. you know a lot a lot of their their stuff did not do well um so it's it's you know sure it comes from sort of the american major indie circuit because i think annapurna is like one of the the people who runs that's like the kid of a finance guy yeah. uh, megan ellison i think is her name I'm not, which you know whatever look nobody's responsible for their parents and good on you for trying to help get movies i wouldn't have otherwise get made you know into theaters because a lot of those annapurna films are not commercial at all. And mm-hmm. so on the one hand, you have that aspect of it, which is really cool. And it's like, who cares if it makes money? Like, let's make the art. But then you have the sort of, it becomes a feature of the Amazon streaming service or, you know, wherever it happens to be. It launches for Boots Riley a career in television and film that leads to a job at Amazon. So it's, you know, does what is revolutionary? And can yeah. you can well, you do something revolutionary within a, a system that is not? And then, you know, Cash's own movement within the film, uh, he obviously the work and conditions of the lower level uh, Regal View hmm. uh, employees is very different than his. I mean, his life is not. I mean, he's not being exploited in the same sense. I mean, it, there is a sense in which his soul is being exploited, but he's being compensated and benefits and you're talking about after he becomes a power caller after he becomes a power caller and so he doesn't feel like there's a connection there but there's an idea that this other thing's going on and i i do think that there is sort of this ongoing sort of mantra that comes out of this sort of leftist kind of criticism which is there is no ethical consumption under capitalism Mm. and that no matter where you find yourself in that system if you are creating art that says sort of does battle that still nonetheless you're going to be part of the machine if you find yourself signing your to a record label in order to bring down the system and you make an album like evil empire i'm looking at rage against the machine or at um you know the coup yeah you're going to still be part of that other machine right uh, again for those of us who are terminally online and have ruined our brains you're seeing the meme of the little guy in the well going ah I see you participate in capitalism. Hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the, that guy. 
as I'm sure yeah. this is connecting dots for some people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, it is a sort of, that's one of the big E's, and of course it is, because yeah. that's just, that's where we're at. And so, yeah, the question then is, so let's, let's sideline that. So we often have to recognize that there is this sort of two masters or the way in which we're trying to break up a system while working within a system. And then that's a sort of set of contradictions that we all have to sort of negotiate as either artists or consumers of art. But the other side of it is the question, does change really get affected? And I was, when I was thinking about it, I've started rolling my mind back to 50s and 60s movies about race uh, and racial equality and uh, sort of, uh, you know, that were mass audience kind of movies. You know, I'm not thinking about Shaft or those John Roundtree movies, Richard Roundtree movies or something like that. I was thinking like In the Heat of the Night or a film like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, um, both starring Sidney Poitier. And uh, both movies, I mean, thematically, they're they're about equality. They're about the recognizing the humanity. It's about um, seeing the sort of brokenness of this kind of fundamental um, intellectual breakdown that sort of funds and and, and sustains racist ideology. Hmm. And I mean, they didn't fix it, right? I mean, that 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 that's, you know, that's the thing is like we saw Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and did anybody change? Or you know, you see something like In the Heat of the Night. Doesn't d- does does that kind of movie? move that needle well especially in the 20 teens when film is not at the center of cultural discourse in mm-hmm. any way right sure right? and we're especially like not a film like sorry bother you which makes you know 18 on a three mm-hmm. um is like what, what we're talking about on return versus budget so right. it's like it's small potatoes anyway you cut it so not a lot of people saw this movie or probably even aware of this movie right so of course it can't have mass cultural impact but you know at the same time it also gets people thinking about labor but, but, it gets a generation who didn't grow up with organized labor thinking about it at the very least i, w- I wish i could remember there was a case study in one of my communication textbooks um kind of talking about the kind of way media can impact a culture um but it was about a south i can't remember which country there's a south american uh, tv show uh, that featured a woman uh, i believe who is divorced or goes through some sort of separation um, and she has to find a way to survive and thrive. And so she takes up sewing um, and, and doing other stuff. And there was like uh, throughout that country, a, a rise and increase in sale of like singer uh, sewing machines and other stuff where it had impacted the, the mm, culture mm-hmm. and the change there. Hmm. Well, it um, happened one night more. with with Clark Gable and yeah, undershirt you, sales going away. Or, yeah. yeah. The, uh, the the old wives' tale there. Well, I'll tell you yeah. what, though. There is a I, there is a opposite effect when it comes to political change. So, again, I don't know that racism got any better because of In the Heat of the Night. I don't know that it got any better because of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which I'm, I'm sad about. I mean, I, yeah. I want that to happen. But I, I do know that racism got worse or got more organized after Birth of a Nation. Sure. That Ku Klux yeah. Klan um, roles were falling, falling, falling. And then after the release of that film... Uh, we saw a sort of a massive increase in a resurgence of the KKK. Uh, I definitely grew up around more than a few guys who did not understand what American History X was about. Oof, for sure. I mean, that was, you know, a part of suburbia and the aughts was definitely some of those guys mm-hmm. uh, just in the, the sphere, just mm-hmm. kind of floating around. I, uh, I'm actually kind of curious. I, I wish I could remember when I talked about it uh, in the heat of the night a while back. Um, I looked at some uh, people talking about it and some historians and talking about the way in which kind of by the time in the heat of the night and uh, guess who's coming to dinner came out, the the African-American community has sort of already started to turn on Poitier Mm. in a lot of ways. Uh, Oh, yeah, it's kind of a sellout or whatever. Yeah, Mm. that he wasn't, you know, he was still maintaining this sort of peaceful idea uh, and, you know, everything happening with King and X and, you know, maybe, you know, peace isn't the the best option and violent protest may be the way to go. Yeah. Um, And then especially in, in light of King's assassination, that's when, you know, the community's kind of completely turned on. Right. And he couldn't really recover from that. Interesting. Yeah. He didn't position himself the way Henry Belafonte did at that same time. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I do think, again, I, I, I think political change in regressive familiar kinds of ways of thinking acting and being is much more effective using art or not effective but 
it's it's easier to get that needle to move than it is to get someone to Which fundamentally the change. They call it reactionary politics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, then to get someone to fundamentally change what they're doing and how they're approaching things. But I do think Boots Riley puts in that scene. I want to talk about the performance art scene now mm-hmm. because I think part of what that scene is. I think we're supposed to read it as this is a successful attempt at creating the kind of art that does inspire, but it also is sort of born to fail because it makes us so uncomfortable. And not just us, you know, as we, the three white guys in a podcast. That's what you call a group of three white guys. It's just a podcast of guys, right? Um, Murder of crows. I, I like to give Heath credit for that tweet. You oh, know, yeah, I, yeah. You know, I've seen it around that idea online a couple of times, but I think he got there early. I think he's the first one, too. I, anyway. Heath Huffman is a comedic genius. Um, but I, I think, though, that's that's fundamentally the thing, is if we were to make the kind of art that would scandalize us so that we would actually change and do things different, we couldn't sit through it. Mm-hmm, and not mm-hmm. just us, but also members of the community that are, you know, that are sort of the, the targets of liberation from this. Although race is not at the heart of this, this is more of a class kind of question overall, but race is obviously uh, inextricably linked to the problems uh, that we're seeing here in, uh, sorry to bother you, that when you have Lakeith Stanfield's character who at this point, see, I don't know where to position him because at this point he's already a power caller. Yeah. He's already sort of elevated. He's sort of made good or whatever. And like in this scene voices, the concern that like what Detroit is doing is like her, its own kind of power calling. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know how to square that circle because I, you're right that I think it does sort of stand in for the idea of art that makes us supremely uncomfortable yeah. with like its realness of, you know, uh, <laughs> the idea of where the inside of your cell phone comes from and what, mm-hmm. how, how it's paid for. Uh, but also like comes with a white voice. Right. Yeah. And uh, it is not the same art that she was showing Cassius earlier in the film, these sort of large Africa sculptures or not right. sculptures, but like multimedia pieces. I, I don't know quite what to call them. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know where that fits in, but I think it's interesting that mm-hmm. Cassius is like, that's, that's where he's coming from. And obviously that comes from like him being Detroit's romantic partner sure. and having probably like, you know, male possessiveness issues with mm-hmm. what's, what's going on. Yeah, there's so, a gendered part to it as well. Yeah, yeah for sure. But I, I, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to, I was going to give a footnote. Um, just a fun footnote. The, uh, the performance art piece is, uh, loosely based on a Yoko Ono piece. Do you guys, have you guys seen Cut? I've, I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, for those who haven't heard listening on the show, Cut is a piece where Yoko Ono stood before a group of people and, uh, in a dress and gave them all scissors. Mm. And the only instruction was to cut. And, you know, she ends up naked by the end. Uh, wild, wild sort of performance arts piece. So, you know, look it up if you want to. Performance arts wild. It is, it's a wild thing, yes. So it's a weird world that doesn't always make sense to me. But, mm-hmm. like, I see its value at the same time. You mentioned sort of the way race is sort of inextricably, inextricably linked with all the class stuff here. And I think it's there's probably a really interesting read that I'm not qualified to give about squeeze the labor organizer mm-hmm. being an Asian American and, and like how that relates to all of this and sort of model minority myths and sort of fear of the other um, and sort of the, the this experience of uh, the larger American hegemony, like keeping you from feeling like you're part of America mm-hmm. uh, as far as in the Asian American experience, you know, these are things that get talked about smarter people than me that, that have experienced it. Can, well, he gets the line there towards the end where he says, you know, one struggle, you know, yeah. with the Equisapiens. And so I think they're it's about class solidarity yeah. and interracial like, yeah. you know, and harmony. N- knowing that there are individual other kinds of exploitations mm-hmm. or individual other kinds of uh, oppressions that differ different racial groups will experience but to think in terms again it seems to be rightly suggestive if we think in terms of class first then we deal with the other stuff as it comes along right yeah. it seems to be the politics of the piece but it's it's all still tied up in it right i mm-hmm. mean there's a you know cash is being forced to rap at the party and like it, it's man which is talk about the, <laughs> yeah. the when art makes you uncomfortable right yeah well it made well, me uncomfortable the second time. The yeah. first time, Jamal about fell out of his I'm chair. I'm sure he was laughing that off. Yeah. <laughs> we were laughing so hard. And it's that, I mean, it is extremely funny, but yeah, when it was just me and Beck at home watching, it's like, God, oof, oof. Yeah. This is, this is a tough scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the film doesn't pull any punches. It, there, that's why it feels like real art. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, it feels like such a 
big swing from a first time filmmaker yeah. because it, it is very much what exactly what it wants to be and uh, is is not holding back. Uh, good movie. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, let's talk about the Equisapiens for just a second before we wrap up. Just the idea. I think this is the last idea that the film is trying to suggest to us is the idea of the dehumanization of the laborer. Mm-hmm. That yep. that itself is just a, the the choice to turn them into horse people. Is, is to again dehumanize, dehumanize, yeah. yeah. But I also, I mean, it's also to underscore the fact that no matter how tawdry, there's a way in which a corporation can spin it to make it a positive. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, right. I mean, this happens, and then the entire government's like, yeah, yeah like, the, and there's the like a scientific breakthrough, yeah, and mm-hmm. Army Hammer celebrating on Wall Street with champagne and what, and, the, and Congress and the House. Right? Well, I mean, to your point about like the civil rights struggle and like what was going on in the '60s, like. They've got a contingency plan for when there's inevitably some the Equisapiens organize. Yeah, they they are they've already taken You've care of it. Got to figure it out. Yeah, but I think it, it works so effectively because of the way in which this capitalist world has been presented to mm-hmm. us that it's easy to be like, yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, they're just going to monetize the horse people. Yeah, and yeah. make it for the greater good. Mm-hmm. It's very funny to have Cassius uh, the the montage of him on all the news shows, and then the reveal that the the news is you know yeah, Steve White. Oh yeah, oh, ringing the bell with both houses of Congress. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Just uh, they've never been more profitable. Yeah, yeah. Choices are made. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Very very cool. Well, um, is there anything else that we just really are desperate to talk about right now? Uh, you know, it, just the way in which. Uh, they they've got the contingency plan for a false messiah. Mm-hmm. You know the way that they're ready to co-opt uh, the struggle. Uh, yeah, it's, just, it's already part of their plan. Well, yeah, it's good stuff. You know they don't. The movie doesn't have time to get that deep into that. That's just sort of one of many things going on in the mm-hmm. last part of the movie. And I remember thinking this thought. You know, you mentioned this sort of idea here, and I was thinking about um, Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, his sort of swing in popularity. Um, that uh, again, there's always been this, you know, certain you know, hard shell um, segment of the population that was never going to like Dr. King, but um, his popularity is waning by 1968 because he has made more of a class kind of transition. I think about his uh, speech, "The Other America," that he gave at Stanford, and uh, when he's at Memphis in '68, when he's a Fascinated, actually, he's there for a sanitation worker strike. He is showed up because uh, two guys got killed by a machine, and the workers are like, "We need better conditions. We need to get paid better. Or we're not going to pick up the trash no more." Uh, which is, you know, this is the way a strike ought to work. And it is at that particular instance that um, he finds, you know, himself at the end of an assassin's bullet. And uh, the idea that you can talk about some of these issues, but not others, these issues, that there are lanes to stay in. And we want to, again, sort of control this conversation. So we want an Equisapien for sort of Equisapien rights and, you know, humanity and sort of guiding it. But not we won't mess with the monies. We won't mess with this other side of stuff here um, where we see the intersectionality of the various sort of struggles and the ways in which this can unite across these lines. We, it's, it's better to keep these blocks um, with wedge issues between them, right? Hmm. And so I just I thought that was kind of fascinating that the Lyft character was wanting to do that. Well, and then again, it's interesting and awesome that Squeeze says one struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think you've taken us right into the station. We're calling a work stoppage. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Phones down. Phones down. So what do you say, Arthur? Shell for trash for sorry to bother you. Yeah, I, I mean, this easily finds it. It's in there. We didn't really get to talk about this. In hindsight of 2018, I just don't feel like we're talking about this movie or Boots Riley in a way that the initial buzz would have had. But I think it's worth watching. I think it's worth seeing. Um, I think it's timely. Uh, more, Maybe more so. I mean, again, seeing it in 2023 is much more interesting. And, you know, maybe it's sort of pro- prophetic nature of it or, or whatever, finger on the pulse and seeing what's coming um, is really cool. But I, I think it's still culturally relevant. I think it's uh, fun to watch. Um, if you like movies to get weird, it's going to get weird with mm-hmm. it. And so I, I, I would easily put it on my shelf very good very good what do you say dalton a totemic american film important fun viable very good very good i also say shelf it is just too good to miss and so i recommend it pretty highly um you will be surprised at times there's a hundred percent more horse penis in this than i expected uh and uh but if you can handle that you'll be all right you, and then after you watch this you watch wolf cop <laughs> <laughs> no you should watch wolf cop that you should watch cool wolf movie. cop but no you're a wolf Cop. <laughs> you oh. know what? Don't snort stuff. 
somebody hands you mysterious powder, yeah, maybe think twice. Correct. So, Dalton, do you have any um, information you can give the dear listener about how they can have a conversation with us and tell us how we're wrong? That's, how do they reach customer service? Uh, if you want to give Arthur and I advice on how to unionize, uh, you can send that <laughs> to goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. Uh, that's the name of the show you're listening to, at gmail.com. Um, we're all over the internet, um, at Good Trash Media, but we're not really doing a lot of posting Um you know, you can follow the three of us on Letterboxd if you really want to see what we're up to. That's that's where we're talking about what we're watching. Uh, he's Dustin Sells. He's the Arthur Gordon. I'm Dollywood Squares, but they have got a character limit on uh, on old Letterboxd. So you got to drop the A if you're just, you know, doing Letterboxd.com. Dollywood Squares. Squares. Uh, I'm also, you know, Dollywood Squares on Instagram. You can follow these guys on, on Instagram, but they're not usually talking about this show. They're just talking about their cool cool lives and rarely that even they're private and that's good you should stay private uh, if we learned anything from uh the social network it's privacy is you know not underrated mm-hmm. uh but if you want to help us keep this show going uh you can go to patreon.com forward slash gtm to get more info on that and what's in it for you um last but certainly not least uh is i'm i'm, I'm gonna be doing a live show soon Mm. more info to come but uh as of your hearing this the first one's probably already happened um alex sanchez and i are going to be starting a movie interruption show at the film row rodeo cinema uh so yeah last week's guest alex sanchez and i will soon have a a weekly residency uh so thursdays is what we're looking at Um, thursdays this this fall you can find uh, more info. Just follow uh, Alex or I on, 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 Plus. on the damn internet, and uh, we'll give you more info about that. Very good, very good. Thank you for that, Dalton. That sounds exciting, man. I'm really excited good for it. for you, buddy. Thanks, That's buddy. great. So, um, Arthur, what are we doing next? Uh, well, we've wrapped up our 2018 retrospective. I, I don't know. Did we did we give a fair shake to these four films? Yes. 2018, pretty good year. Yeah. yeah. It was a fun time. Yeah. Even Venom. Yeah, very good time. We even the things we didn't shelf out of this marathon, we all liked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, good, good for us. Well, uh, now it's that time of the year. I mean, guys, it's December. It snuck up on us. Uh, I can't so it. we're going to start talking about 2023 and getting ready for end of year kinds of things uh, and getting ready to reflect on what this year has been uh, in modern and in, in current cinema. Uh, and so we're going to set our sights on some of the blind spots that we may have missed. Uh, and I'm being kind of mean on this one. I'm being a little restrictive. You're kind of being you're going stinker mode. Yeah, you I showed am. a lot of rules. I didn't actually read them, but I know that there's lots of the rules. First rule. Don't talk about Fight Club. Second rule uh, has to be a blind spot. Third right. rule has to be English language, primarily film. That's at me. Uh, third third rule. Well, my pick was going to be passages, so I think I, that's also at me. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, has to be wide release 2023. Mm-hmm. Pretty pretty easy there. Uh, and, and then the final rule was uh, it has to have at least uh, an or at most an 80 percent uh, critic score on the tomato meter. Or below. Which is, you know, when I started to split hairs and go, mm, how much of Passages is in English? I saw its, it's score. And it's like, oh, yeah, shit. Yeah. Well, that's, that's gone. No, I'm so much cruel. for that. Well, it's, you're making us pick good trash, I think, is what you're doing. Yeah. And I think that's fair. It'll come to light when we get to anti-trash, I think. So Interesting. Interesting. Um, so this this will pay off in January. I think so. Okay. I think so. Can I tell you what my my working theory is what are you is there just like so much good anti-trash from 2023 that we're just going to do a 2023 anti-trash Mm-mm. okay no good your working theory is wrong good i just <laughs> that's fine it, that just helps Back me to the lab. that helps me know what i need to catch up with <laughs> before to shoot I, someone down is the only thing that delights him so it's good no there is a gaping wound in my chest now getting off on me withholding <laughs> um well, I'm excited for the parameters. I think it'll be fun. So, yeah. so what are we doing first, Art? Well, I think I'm going to pick a movie that, in a genre I don't know that we've actually ever covered before. Um, looking back, thinking back, I could be wrong. Uh, maybe a tangentially related. Uh, but I don't know that we've ever done a movie of this type. And so next week, uh, we're heading to the track, boys. And we're going to catch up with Neil Blomkamp's Sony commercial. I mean, Gran Turismo. Whoa. Whoa! Yeah, we've never done a racing movie. I don't think so. Wow, we've done a video game movie. We we've done, Mario. I mean, we've done some car-related stuff. Yeah, but I don't know if we've done a racing done a movie. Proper 
you know, Formula vroom, vroom One drag car race racing. Movie. Yeah, we definitely have it. I, I can't think of one. No, we yeah, we did Gone in sixty seconds, but that's just about stealing yeah. cars. It's and a we did a movie. Fast Five. Mm-hmm. We, yeah, also a, a crime car something. thing amalgamation. I think it's about family abomination, <laughs> family drama. <laughs> yeah. All right, then we're gonna watch Gran Turismo. Sounds like a good time. You all keep watching. We'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. 